listening to the Weekly Service Podcast, crowdsourced wisdom to help you reimagine life. To find out more about the Weekly Service and to listen to more of our podcasts, head to www.theweeklyservice.com. In this episode, we hear Inbul Rodney Steinberg share her story titled, My Kids Say I'm a Weird Mum. This service was curated by Weekly Service member Caroline Busson. Inbul's story is beautifully crafted, woven together with the keenest, kindest awareness and intention. It's funny, light and deep. At its heart, it's a story about how Inbul's experience led her to see the inconsistencies in society's rules and how they let her down. It's a story of how this has empowered her to make her own rulebook. As a woman and a mum, she owns her story and uses it to deconstruct unhelpful narratives and affect change. She has this power. We offer a content warning for this story. It discusses sex and child sex abuse. Inbul has braved child abuse and she talks about it. She talks about it simply just as she talks about it with her kids. Because, she says, silence is oppressive and we must turn on the lights. Come on in I'll put the kettle on You seem a tad edgy Maybe a brandy, some wine A whiskey So my kids do say That I'm a weird mom um, A while ago we were riding in the car And my kids are at the back And I'm driving, we're listening to the radio And there was a friend, another friend with them at the back And there's a song on the radio And there's the word masturbate in the song. And I hear some chatter and some giggle at the back of the car. And then the friend goes, shh, your mom would hear us. <laughs> and then my son said, oh, it's OK that my mom hears us. We can talk to my mom about things like that. And then we had a chat about what masturbation actually means. It's a funny word. We had a lot of giggles. Um, what it is, who does it? Mm. And, um, <laughs> um, and what some opinions are that people have about it. And, um, and I gave myself a huge pat on, pat on the back because that was another proof for me that I managed to create for my kids the environment that I want for them. So I had three boys at primary school age. And, and they do, they do ask me questions. There was once when they asked me, Mom, why do people at school say the number 69 and then laugh? And I took a deep breath and simplified and explained. <laughs> and, uh, there was another time when my eldest son, a few years ago now, asked me, Mommy, is it true that there are websites where you can see naked people? <laughs> um, and I said, yes, there are. And we had a bit of a chat and we talked about... Um, Porn, we use the word, and what's the difference between porn and sex, and why does it exist, and who watches porn? And, um, you know, there's the statistics that say that I think by year three, the vast majority of children in Australia um, will have seen a porn video. 
a mainstream one, which is what we called hardcore back then, right? But for sure, <laughs> the statistics are about other kids, right? It's not our kids, it's <laughs> other kids. So I asked my son, who told you? Did you see any? And he said, yes. And I said, who, who showed you? And he said, my younger brother. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I grew up in a small town, in a, a very small town in Israel. And um, we had lots of cats and dogs and cows and chickens and ducks and even a monkey at some point. And my grandparents lived in the next door and we had family around. So it sounds like a beautiful, idyllic childhood. And there were beautiful, beautiful parts to it. It was a bit lonely. So we weren't in the main town where the school was and there was a school bus an hour every morning and an hour every afternoon to go back. And in my mind, I thought every afternoon, all the quick kids at school, they hang out and they do things together. And, and I wasn't part of it. I never knew really what they talked about and why they laughed when they said certain words or what they meant when they referenced certain things. But still, I had my animals and I had my books. I was really into books and I had, um, I loved languages. So I tried to teach myself French. I would get, I got books and try to teach myself French. My mom, she speaks French to her mom when they don't want us to understand. <laughs> so I did understand quite a bit. Um, and at some point, I signed up to this mathematics by correspondence course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> every so often, I get this envelope, and there'll be in the post, and there'll be some math concepts in it and some exercises, and I do them, and I post them back. That was online of the 80s. <laughs> and then I'd wait and wait, and one day I'd get another one. And that was super exciting stuff. Um, and in, in a miraculous way, out of that, I was found through some program that they were opening the following year. Um, it's a new school for the gifted in Jerusalem. It was in boarding conditions. Like you got there, and there was going to be this full immersion with people who love math and science and music and art and it was heaven like just the place i wanted to be in my town the only after school activity was soccer mm -hmm. and it wasn't me so there were tests and another day another day of testing and another day of testing and a weekend in residence uh, workshop and i passed every stage and i passed every stage i got to the last stage it was the work an interview and in the interview, I remember that teacher telling me, you know, it's interesting that you're here because you're almost the only child here who does not come from some gifted program or accelerated learning something. I guess came from an agricultural school where a day a week we worked in the fields. And I said, that's not a problem. You're just going to give me some more books and I'll study them too. Not an issue at all. And I got in. Um, so that was going to be great. But something ha else happened just around the same time. So this was year nine when I was 14. And something else that happened was that a grown man, someone very close to my family, who knew my parents well before I was born, he's roughly the age of my parents, and who's been there in every birthday of mine and has a daughter roughly my age and we had sleepovers and 
And that man started noticing me. We used to work um, sorting cucumbers and packing flowers, and there were more and more opportunities that it was just him and me. And he said that I was really interesting and that I was so smart. And he said I understood him in ways that even grown women don't. And at some point he even said that I was pretty. And we spent more and more time together and um, we got closer and closer and it started becoming physical and he told me you know, that whenever he's near me, his body reacts in ways he can just, just can't control. That was so attractive. And that felt just great. Got really close and it became full-on sex ed in depth. Um, in one of my diary entries from that time, I used the word divine. And that referred to the first time that I had oral sex given to me. And all that time, something was changing in my life. I had this great secret that I was keeping from my parents because we thought they were not going to understand the big love that we had. So I would sneak out and I would sneak in and I would come home sometimes all red and excited with my heart beating from excited from excitement of what I've just done and sneak in the house, try to keep cool so that they don't know anything. And I remember the one time that I came in and as I walked in the house, I noticed some spots of sperm on my shoe. And I thought, oh, I gotta hide that so that they don't notice. And I started with all the hiding, hanging out with other older kids that weren't really interested like me in math and poetry and books and taught me how to smoke and drink and there were other things that were way more exciting. I didn't finish that year at school. I failed some of the tests and probably didn't even attend some of the others. But luckily I was already enrolled in that amazing school for the gifted in Jerusalem. It was waiting for me all this fantastic opportunity to get access to knowledge. And I went there, all excited and happy, but it didn't seem to work. It didn't seem to work because I didn't seem to be able to focus and because I tried to become friends with everyone. And when people mentioned sex and giggled, I would talk about it because I knew about it and I thought it would give me some sort of a social status, right? Because I know stuff that everyone's interested in. Turns out that when you're a 15-year-old girl and you talk a lot about sex, it gives you a very different social status. So I got a bit of a reputation. And I remember one time where a boy at school asked me to have sex with his friend as a birthday gift. And I remember the time that one of the really cool boys, um, we were sitting at a corner in the library and having a chat over something that we studied that day really cool boy and we started talking it was really nice and then we kissed and then he laughed because turned out it was a bit and he won the bit and he never noticed me again and then there was this boy that was really nice and we were hanging out together and 
One day he told me that the teachers told him that he shouldn't really hang out with me because I was part of the negative group of the school and his studies really mattered, so he shouldn't and he apologized and we didn't hang out anymore. And then there was the night when I woke up with a hand over my face and pulled out of bed by two boys out of the room into the corridor stuck to the wall, my feet not, hair, not touching the ground, and there was a knife and smell of alcohol, and they, were, they told me what they were going to do, and, and how it's okay to do it with me. And I did manage to talk my way out of that one and get back into my room. Then the door opened again, and they walked in again, and I thought, fuck, they changed their mind, and then... They just came in to tell me not to tell anyone. Got little wings. In the morning, I had my priorities right. So first I went and did my Hebrew grammar exam that we had that morning. And then I went to the principal's office and um, told them what happened. And one of them got sent home um, because he was troubled to begin with. But the others, they said, he's a good boy. So he stayed. And Things got even harder then, because I remember going to the cafeteria to have lunch or dinner, and um, it seemed like there always were, was a big group of friends around him, and he was glad they were laughing and having fun, and I didn't have a big group of friends around me laughing and having fun, so I just turned around and went back, back to my bedroom. And I didn't feel comfortable anymore even just walking around the corridors of our school. So shortly after, they moved me to another bedroom because they said that I'd become a distraction to the girls in the room. And they moved me to a room with other girls they were also distracting, and that was fine. At the end of um, that year, I got sent out of that school, and I thought, you know, that's enough. You know, year 11, I didn't sign up to any school. I just stayed at home because I had enough of that, and I threw all the books away of my bedroom, and I said that I'm never touching a pen ever in my life. My parents managed to get me into a democratic school where you didn't really have to do much, just be there. Just be in the company of people your age. And I didn't do much. I mostly sat at the tree, which was the smoking area, and I smoked every day, all day. But the amazing thing that happened there was that nobody judged me there. And uh, I wasn't part of the negative group because there wasn't a negative group. And I could slowly relax and breathe. And as I relaxed, I told one of my friends what had happened. And he told a teacher. And I remember the day we were sitting in an empty classroom on the desks, the teacher and I swinging our legs. And he told me, you know, your friend told me what had happened and maybe you should tell your parents. <laughs> I said, no, they're going to kill me. And um, he said, maybe someone else. And I got a therapist and I told the therapist. And a few months later, or through a process of a few months, we got to the stage that she facilitated telling my parents and they didn't kill me. Thanks, Mom. And um, they did another extraordinary thing, is that they believed me. And they, they didn't doubt me for a second. And my dad went to this man who lived in our town and said not to get near me anymore. 
And we think that this is the turn, right? This is where the healing starts. But it didn't. <laughs> because nothing else happened. We went on like normal. I remember just a week or two after telling my parents, I remember the picture of my mom um, dishing out soup into his bowl in a social gathering. And I remember the same social gathering, my older brother sitting with him, having laughs and running jokes. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, my therapist was so wrong because she told me that it's not okay what he did and that it's unacceptable. But in reality, yeah, it's illegal, but maybe it's more like, you know, when you're not supposed to drive over the speed limit and, you know, but when your friend drives over the speed limit and get a ticket, you don't stop talking to them, right? You're not angry with them, you know? If they buy some crayons for their kids at Officeworks and put it on their business account, right? We don't stop talking to them, so it's probably the same, right? So I was 18 and 19 and 20. By the time that I was ready to start my adult life, I had absolutely no clue how I'm going to keep safe in this world. Because all the rules they told me never worked. They told me that my job as a child is to do my homework and to work hard at school and I'll be fine. But I wasn't. I did all my homework and I got kicked out from three schools in four years. They told me that um, you need to work by the rules. There's laws to protect us. But he didn't. And everybody knows, and nothing happened. So do the rules only apply to me? How does it work? And even more, they told me that you know your family and your friends, these are the people who will protect you. You trust them, their blood, they care, right? <laughs> My experience was that they'll fuck you. And then at some point, and then no one else will do anything. The rest of my family, you know, either didn't know because it was a secret that we needed to hide because it was shameful, or knew and never said a word. <coughs> so nothing seemed to work. And so my decision was to burn the rule book to just burn this rule book because it doesn't work and it doesn't mean anything. And I don't know who wrote this rule book and how it got developed, but it was probably people who didn't know me and definitely didn't think about my best interest. So fuck them. <laughs> you. You. Um, so for my kids, there's a different rule book. Our rule book is very simple. It has one page. And it says, think for yourself. And as long as we can think for ourselves and make sense of what we're doing and be able to explain what we're, why we're doing what we're doing, we're good. And my kids know that. So I book all their dental and other medical appointments on Thursday mornings because that's when they have French at school and they hate it. So let's not do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm much more strict about other things, like think for yourself and be compassionate to other people. So when they came and showed me, me one, an internet meme that shows a girl and was making fun of that girl, I told them, and they laughed, and I told them, yeah, it is funny, right? Because she's look, sitting on that thing, and it looks like that thing is probably in her vagina, right? That's what it, we know it's not, but it looks like. And it feels great, doesn't it? It feels great to laugh at someone else. It feels great to be part of that group. It feels powerful. And like there's a bond within the group. It does feel great to make fun of someone else and to be part of the group that makes fun of someone else. And then we're invited to think of what she would think or feel, what she would feel if she knew what we're saying about her now. And do we want to be part of that culture that makes her feel like that? Our choice, think for yourself. When one of my sons decided uh, or shared with me that he's having fun wearing dresses and putting on some jewelry, or that he wanted to try, not only did we go and get some dresses and some jewelry and had some fun, but I shared with him, and also, sorry, we also, um, I went and read about it and found out the terminology and the options that we have and pictures of grown men who wear dresses and have fun and educated myself. I shared with him all of that. And I shared with him also how proud of, I am of him for being able to identify what he actually feels and put that into words and act on it. These are the children, these are the people I want in my life. I always ask them, um, when they have friends, I always ask them, what is it that you like about that child? Why do you hang out with them? And what version of you are you when you're with that person? And the reason I ask them that is that I want them to be aware of the forces that are in us, that attract us to some people, and that make us behave or make the choices that we make. Somebody at the service recently um, um, had a chat, I had a chat with somebody at the service recently and they raised the question of, do you have to go through trauma yourself in order to develop that emotional depth and that ability to connect with other people in meaningful ways? And I want to suggest that you don't. There is enough trauma <laughs> to go around. Let's just share it. Let's, <laughs> let's share it is caring. Let's just turn on the lights. My kids know about my history, and they will never be able to remember when was the first time they heard about it. Because it's always been there. Because it's okay, it's normal. They know about grooming, they know about sexual abusers, they know what they look like. They look like all of us. Um, let's turn on the lights. Let's talk about everything. Because when we talk about everything, we're stronger, we're together. And, we, and then, I believe, we can eradicate any evil. And these are the kids I'm trying to raise. And these are the men I plan to release into this world.
after hearing someone's story at the weekly service, we like to find the multiplicity in it by adding our own experiences, our own insights, and maybe even wisdom. So we offer you this prompt to reflect. In your life, what rules do you reject and what rules do you create? You might even like to share this podcast with a friend and discuss your reflections with them. Now, as a final note, to close this service, we'll listen to Patti Smith's People Have the Power. So I can recommend looking that song up, playing it loud and shouting, People Have the Power. <laughs> 